Welcome to Director's Club. My name is Bill Ackerman, and I'm uh, guest hosting today uh, to know Jim, Patrick, Al, or Brad. Um, what this is, uh, so Jim and I had done uh, episode 193 on Abel Ferrara, and uh, at the time, Lionsgate had offered us a screener uh, to review for Zeros and Ones, Abel Ferrara's new film. Uh, Jim can't make it today, um, but so what I chose to do was bring in uh, a friend and uh, you know fellow film writer, uh, Chris O'Neill, uh, who's a filmmaker. He's a documentarian, does scripted narrative and experimental films. Uh, he's a writer, like I said. He's written for Senses of Cinema, Hysteria Lives, uh, Experimental Conversations. Uh, he's worked in film distribution. He's been a film programmer for 20 years. Uh, he's the head of the cinema at Triscoll uh, Christchurch since 2011. Uh, and he's a prolific video essay contributor for labels like Imprint, Severn Films, 88 Films, Mondo Macabro, Fun City Editions, BFI, I think now Vinegar Syndrome and Blue Underground. Uh, it's Chris O'Neill, and um, he was a, someone I knew was a, uh, a fellow Abel Ferrara fan, and so I thought he'd be a great person to speak with about this uh, interesting new film. So how are you doing, Chris? Uh, good, thanks. And uh, I was delighted to get to uh, see the new Abel Ferrara film uh, for this chat. So uh, A, I get to see it. B, I get to talk about it and work out what exactly it is I saw afterwards. <laughs> Yes. Now, I think we were saying before the recording how this is uh, you know, kind of a challenging film in some ways. I mean, I think it's being sold as more of a straightforward political thriller. Um, and roughly the story, uh, su- such as you know, we can describe it uh, briefly, is it's a, um, it's a story where Ethan Hawke is playing an American soldier who's uh, in lockdown Rome uh, during a pandemic. And it's, he's involved in a uh, kind of a, a plot trying to prevent a uh, terrorist bombing of the Vatican. And uh, Hawke also plays his... Uh, yeah, the soldier's twin brother, uh, an imprisoned political revolutionary, uh, and like I said, it's like it, it's being presented as something almost like a born identity kind of uh, nail-biting uh, action thriller, and it's really uh, a lot more mysterious and contemplative than that. So now, this is the first time you're seeing it as well, Chris. What what was your first impressions of it as a longtime Abel Ferrara fan? Well, what was interesting was. Um in Ireland, we just had the Cork International Film Festival. So after the final shift that I had been working at Triscoll, because my cinema is one of the venues involved, uh, came home quite late, started watching the screener. And that, in a weird way, was absolutely perfect because my strange after-midnight slightly blurry tired um feelings sort of felt i perfect for what was happening in the movie does that make any sense it does because because the movie like to you know to 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 sum it up in a way that is uh marketable yes it sounds like an espionage thriller but by the end of it, I was thinking it was more like a, a stream of consciousness, dystopian kind of dream state film or something. I, that sounds quite peculiar, but it has this weird kind of blurry, slightly um, 3 a.m., but you're buzzing and awake, like like, like somebody is th- leaving a bar at 3 a.m., but they're sober, <laughs> but they're sort of tired and everyone else is around them is sort of out of it but you're sharp but you just want to get home and it's a really weird analogy but it has this unique like mood to it 
that made it really uh, quite uh, eerie and quite incredibly atmospheric. You know, if that, I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm going off on a kind of a weird stream of consciousness sort of thing trying to describe it. But does that make any sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, I, so it's shot all pretty much all at night. Um, they had access to uh, the lockdown room after hours, but they could only shoot over the course of the night and I think at dawn. So they had like certain restrictions. And so, you know, you have this this kind of dark nighttime ambiance to it. And then it's shot. It's uh, Sean Price Williams was the DP on this. And I, you know, you might have seen him shooting um, uh, things for, I think, the Safties. I think he shot... Um, what did he shoot? Is it Good Time? I know he shot a lot of the Alex Ross Perry films, uh, but he's, he shot a few documentaries for Abel Ferrara. I, this is the first narrative film. Uh, I think he shot Mulberry Street. Um, but he he brings like a handheld, almost like stolen feeling to the shot sometimes. I don't know if you agree. Like It felt like um, like they were just capturing this like it's a dramatic situation that they're they're in because the the city feels like it's under some kind of um kind of lockdown it's it's almost like obviously they filmed it during the lockdown of the pandemic but it feels more like a city under martial law or right. something like a lockdown yeah. via government uh, armed forces taking over the streets or something and um and the eeriness of that kind of empty streets and things it's um it's it's really quite it, it's almost like using something f- like genre to capture a mood of a non-genre real situation that we were going through when the film was shot i i think that's what i'm trying to say <laughs> yeah well i thought of i mean i always think of the way he uses an urban location to express a theme of well, in this case, I think it's just a, a feeling of alienation. Um, the way that the, the the restrictions of COVID have kind of uh, rendered all, all you know human interaction in terms of the masks and the distancing, um, you know, it just it's just using that to create like the alienated feeling of noir or even um, like the kind of I thought of like the conspiratorial thrillers of the 1970s, like that feeling of mistrust and you're playing into a time when, you know, you have a lot of conspiratorial thinking and this is dealing with themes of um, like fake news or not believing what you're seeing because we're dealing in images that can be so easily manipulated. Yeah, I mean, you go back to... Um, well, I mean, I suppose you can go back to Dangerous Game uh, to some extent, the way what's fiction and what's reality. But in particular, I, I, I was thinking of um, New Rose Hotel. Same, is, yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot of specific video imagery in that. And that, that, was, movie, that was a movie shot on celluloid film, but there was a lot of video imagery mixed in, night vision and grainy and kind of blurry security camera footage and the sense and also the fact that that footage can be manipulated and cut a different way to tell different stories and events and also how that film was a film where it takes place in different parts of the world but it's usually interiors and in different hotel rooms or bars or or whatever and while this film has that going on as well to some extent in terms of yeah it's all set in in rome but uh you know and there's a lot of events happening indoors there's also this really 
eerie landscape outdoors as well. And also with Abel's, uh, with Tommaso and I think Siberia too, uh, it's shot it, it's shot in a scope 2.35 um, image and using the wider frame to make it feel more claustrophobic. Like I, I did a, a Q&A in January 2020 with Abel when Tommaso played in Dublin at a film festival mm. and uh, I, I, I asked him, uh, having just seen Tommaso, like, was that a conscious decision to shoot it in CinemaScope? And uh, he just, like, treated it as an off-the-cuff. Like, he just said, oh, that was the DP. Nothing to do with me. He just said it, you know. Mm. And that that kind of goes with sometimes Abel's kind of, uh, you know, uh, he's really earthy and doesn't necessarily think about some of this stuff. But of course he does, because he knows exactly what he's doing. And I'm sure it was a very calculated decision, because... You know, on one hand, he said that was the DP doing that, but he also said, well, that's just everything shot in scope now, you know, because once upon a time to shoot in scope, you needed the lenses, you needed the film stock, and, you know, there's all these different elements where scope uh, also had to be shot in certain locations where you'd be able to fit in the locations because big cameras and things, whereas now you can shoot wide images in very small, tight locations. So obviously there's there's that as well, but... With these films he's been doing that have been in scope recently, like I said, the world opens up more, but you still get the sense of a of a claustrophobia. Um, and in this film as well, there's moments where um, the more the camera zooms into something, it instead of it getting more detailed, it begins more grainy and difficult to to make out and becomes quite abstract uh, which is when you think about it like the whole concept of the Antonioni film blow up you know the more you focus on something the more you look at something the more um inconclusive your the answer you're seeking becomes you know yeah and I asked him about that when the interview that will be part of this episode and yeah he had a great answer for that for because I, I noticed that as well like that that tendency for the camera to push in too far so it becomes yeah like an abstract image and you you're getting less clarity the more you investigate the image <laughs> yeah and and it was interesting when i when i was watching the film because i suppose just to pull back a little bit we're talking about almost like mood and we're talking about imagery and, and things like that but just to pull back there is a narrative there there is a story there but i found myself when i was watching it not really focusing too much on the story and just seeing how things were unfolding and trying to well not trying to do anything other than just see where it was going not trying to decipher it necessarily i just kind of like yeah it feels like the the espionage plot the the kind of you know the thriller element whatever is there to kickstart this story but ultimately it is about capturing a mood a feeling and um you know paranoia distrust distance isolation um all elements that are very human elements but being told with some sort of genre backstory to make it a project that is like a 80 something minute movie yes 86 87 minutes i think yeah and um you know, and and that's what I always liked about Ferrara's films because you know throughout his career, a lot of the, especially the earlier films, would be genre films, but there was always something else going on, like Driller Killer or Miss Forty Five, even Bad Lieutenant. 
you know, is ultimately in theory like a, a cop through like a lone renegade cop thriller, but it isn't, you right. know. Um, and uh, you know, there's several of his films that they can be sold one way, but they go another way, and um, and that's what I think's kind of really going on here, you know. And 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 as far as I know, maybe I'm getting this mixed up, but um, I know Ethan Hawke and Abel Ferrara were they did the Chelsea on the Rocks documentary some years ago, yeah. and I think they were talking about trying to do another project since. So in a weird way, it was it almost seemed like this dual thing of, okay, while lockdown's happening, why don't we make this film where we take advantage of the empty streets? But also I get the sense is, and let's take advantage of uh, Ethan Hawke not doing anything for a, a while where I can actually shoot a film with him. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm getting that wrong, but that's what I no, kind of thought, it, you know? you're right. And it's funny, I think I had heard, and I don't know if this is accurate, I had heard that he was originally... Uh, they were talking about having him play the lead in 444, Last Day on Earth, which for me is where the Defoe collaborations become really interesting because then it becomes uh, Willem Defoe as Abel Ferrara surrogate. I mean, both that and Tommaso feel like cousins in a way in that they both feel so autobiographical and so much about you know, his concerns in life at that time, that um, I was watching this one knowing that it was really one of the only ones that he's the only accredited screenwriter of. Um, there's usually yeah. collaborators, um, even something like Bad Lieutenant or uh, Mary. I mean, I, I think every, everything after Nicholas St. John, uh, you know, stopped uh, writing the screenplays for mm. him. I think he's the uh, co-writer of so many of them. So I, I don't know what his writing process is like, but this is um, the least overtly autobiographical of the narrative films that he's the sole screenwriter on. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wonder how much he's just trying to get ideas out through the two Ethan Hawke characters in this. I mean, if the, the dueling ideologies are him talking about his own views indirectly uh, under the guise of a, a political thriller. Um, and I thought it was interesting how he's using uh, documentary footage of Ethan Hawke out of character to kind of add context, both clarifying the narrative at the beginning and then clarifying the ideas at the end. But it's, you've already been given a whole... Uh, film about distrusting the image. So, are these genuine, <laughs> genuine, uh, you know, documentary scenes, or is this something that's manipulating us in a different way? Well, yeah, because when I first saw the introduction at the beginning, with it being Ethan Hawke on what appeared to be, in terms of quality and presentation, like a like a Skype or a Zoom recording, and it's. Not the character, but hi, I'm Ethan Hawke, and you're about to watch this movie, and we shot it under COVID lockdown, etc. At one point, I was kind of going, okay, why is this here? Is this here to give a sense of time and place of what they were doing? Or more cynically, I was going, well, because maybe this is an unusual film, or there might be certain elements of it that you know the audience are not going to get what they're expecting from it, are they almost trying to set up the under the situation that the film was shot, it's it's not going to be conventional or something, or it's almost like a bit of a, you know, just just so you know, guys, you know, something like that. And I was kind of and, and like, I was kind of going, I don't know what to think about that. Like I was I was dwelling on it a lot while watching the film, and won't obviously spoil what happens at the very end. But at the very right. end, we return to this Ethan Hawke as himself, Zoom uh, recording after the credits. 
And, you know, without going into too much detail, how that eventually resolves itself, uh, I th- at the very last moment, the very last thing said, um, it, it perfectly, it completely won me over and the whole film uh, clicked for me. Hmm. And if that ending, if I had missed that ending, I still would have liked it, but I don't know if it would have worked on the level that it did for me. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to the uh, the writer Alexandra Heller Nicholas about this film, and she wrote a great book on Miss Forty Five, and mm. uh, did a video essay on the Driller Killer release from Arrow. And I know I won't spoil the line, but I know that she finds the last line of Ethan Hawke out of character uh, a rather haunting way to end the film. And mm. I I feel like that would be such an easy thing to miss that that segment because it does come like and after the credits, you know, Marvel teaser, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's. Which is not something you would expect from a film like this. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it, this might sound odd, but the only thing that at the very beginning, being a film person and you know noticing these things, if if I remember correctly, the film opens with the logos of the different film companies involved, and then it goes to the recording. But if it had been the other way around, where it started with the Ethan Hawke recording at the very beginning and then the logos, you would actually treat it like one of these. Um, zoom recording q a things that's going on uh online streaming during the pandemic you know yeah um and it was the fact that it was after the logos and it was in the movie that somehow tipped me off that something was was interesting here what's going on here and i you know and as i said when i saw the very end of the film i went ah okay right i get it now you know so and i'm being vague because i don't want to spoil the ending i think people listening to this will want to just now see the whole thing from the very, you know, from till the very end to know what we're talking about. And you know, then we, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> I, I meant to ask you this beforehand, but um, just what was your history with the work of Abel Ferrara prior to seeing this? Like, what are your favorites? Do you have a favorite era? Like, what was your introduction to his to his work? Well, in the early 90s in the UK and Ireland, uh, Bad Lieutenant became quite a, a controversial film. I mean, it, went, it was a controversial film everywhere, you know, where mm-hmm. it played. But in in the UK, it had... Um, it, well, first of all, it started Harvey Keitel, who at the time had just done Reservoir Dogs. So suddenly Reservoir Dogs, this new Tarantino guy's film, was this major event which uh, for some time wasn't available on video in the UK because um, uh, you know long story short there was a a terrible crime and there was a resurgence of the idea that video and film violence could influence real violence and for a brief period in the early mid 90s uh, several films were not Banned, but they were just delayed getting video certificates. So Reservoir Dogs continued to play in the cinema for a long time uh, before it was actually on video. I think it was 1994, 1995, and when you consider the film came out theatrically, I think in the UK 92, that, that's quite a long, you know, distance mm-hmm. of um, theatrical window to, to video. And Bad Lieutenant had this issue as well. And then in, to further that again, in Ireland, Bad Lieutenant was banned um, just outright. So in the UK, the video was cut, um, but in, in Ireland, it was banned. So And then after that, 
Abel's next film, Dangerous Game, was also banned in Ireland. So this stuff was going on and you, you were interested because you couldn't see the movies. They were unavailable. I was too young. I couldn't go to see them in the cinema or they weren't in the cinema because they were just banned. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, and then as time went on, I got to see the films and initially some of them I didn't quite click with but the but one of the earliest ones that I really liked and it's not one that's considered his uh you know amongst fat you know a lot of people you know it's a very divisive one is a uh, dangerous game or snake eyes as it was originally called the the movie making one with Madonna mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh Keitel and Russo James Russo and um it's probably my favorite movie about movie making uh I, it just really I don't know something about it always kind of gets under my skin when I see it but uh so after that, I don't know. I mean, I just started just trying to find all the films I could see of his. Uh, the Blackout, which was released in the UK and Ireland, and it didn't get a st- released in the States for a long time. Um, and then going back to the older movies. And the weird thing is, each era of Ferrara's filmmaking, they're all different, but I have favourites from each era which um, work for different reasons for me. So I think, like, for example, my favourites, personal favourites, would be The King of New York, which every time I see that film, it it, it just really, I just just think it's such a a perfect film in that kind of, I think there's a handful of movies that are just, like, perfect, like, uh, very few, to be honest. Even my favourite films, most of them are somehow messy or flawed or whatever there's always something but i always think of something like the third man as being a perfect film yeah. you know mm. and uh, maybe the maltese falcon you know a lot of those era of movies but there's something about the king of new york the king of new york i just it, i just think it's absolutely incredible and what's interesting is with with that film ferrara is very precise with lighting and imagery and that kind of thing and not improvising so much on camera, but improvising in the script process, you know? So the dialogue's great and it's sharp and, but it's, but it's very uh, precise in its delivery because they've rehearsed it and all that. Whereas then after that you go 360 and you're looking at Bad Lieutenant, which is all shot off the cuff around the streets in New York uh, sometimes improvised with, you know, it's kind of thin script and things. So King of New York, I think is amazing. Obviously Bad Lieutenant's great, but Dangerous Game really packs a punch. The Blackout, I think, is a, a masterpiece. It, it really gets disturbing each time I see it. It gets more and more disturbing. It really gets under my skin. Um, I've always been a huge fan of uh, New Rose Hotel, which I, to this day, I still find it, absolutely bewildering how much bad press that film got and how much negativity and how much people hated it because you know people genuinely believed that they ran out of money or something and they had to piece together the last half an hour of the movie from outtakes because it all (laughs) unfolds in a you know in like a memory situation and the thing is the last half an hour of the movie which everybody thinks is just made up of outtakes because they ran out of money is actually the short story it's based on is that last half that that last third of the movie is the short story the the uh, gibson short story so that film really get you know i'm a big fan of that welcome to new york with depardieu 
Um, I mean, obviously, I have a personal connection to that because um, two of the actors in that movie I've I've, I've made films with myself since. Mm-hmm. So I really like that film. But it again just really packs a punch. And uh, Siberia is one before the current one. Um, I saw I saw two or three times actually at uh, the Berlin Al Film Fe- you know Berlin Film Festival and. Uh, especially seen out on the big screen was absolutely incredible i really like that one so there are some of my personal favorites but there's so many and there's so many documentary narrative sort of movies there's just so much out there and of course there's there's several classics i'm not referencing which are great but it, they're just you know they just don't hit me on those on that same personal level like miss 45 is a great movie uh china girl um you know the funeral so um you know and and in recent years my own personal other um, involvement if you like not involvement in the movies themselves but in my cinema programming mm-hmm. uh, only two cinemas in Ireland showed Pasolini or Welcome to New York um and one of them was the Irish Film Institute in Dublin and the other one was Triscoll you know um my cinema the only two cinemas in Ireland sh- that showed those movies um my friendship with Brad Stevens who wrote Abel Ferrara, The Moral Vision, which is probably the definitive book on on Abel Ferrara's movies. Uh, my friendship began with um, f- having two copies of movies. Uh, it was The Driller Killer and Fear City mm. that were different to the ones that Brad had written about in The Dark Side. And I let him know and I sent him my copies that I had. And that started our friendship, you know, with, with, with uh, between those movies uh, f- for his book. And like I said, last year I got to do the, the Q&A after Tommaso in Dublin with that film festival screening. So, um, and I, I genuinely believe in terms of a filmmaker who's come from the era that he has and of the body of work he has and he's still making films, he's probably, to me, of that uh, level of filmography, uh I think he would be like America's uh, greatest living director who's still working, you know, who's still getting stuff made. And, um, y- you know, each film, some work better than others occasionally, sure, but there's always something interesting to them, yet they can be incredibly, you know, <laughs> split opinion. And yeah. and this one I can, zeros and ones, I'd absolutely imagine a lot of people, even people who like his work will go, I'm not sure about this. And that's kind of the fun of Abel Ferrara movies as well, you know, because he, he doesn't always make stuff that even Abel Ferrara fans necessarily like, you know, it's. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I thought while watching this, uh, having just done a, uh, you know, a, a major deep dive, I went through every Abel Ferrara film. Uh, you know, I think the only things I didn't watch were the, the TV shows, the uh, Miami, Miami Vice and Crime Story, but I watched everything from mm. the short films up through sport and life. And um, I found something to appreciate about every single one of them. Like there was not one film that I didn't think had some of interest to it. Even ones that I wasn't crazy about growing up. Like I was not, you know, overly fond of like RX Miss or China Girl. Um, mm. some, like growing up now, I really appreciate them a lot more. Um, and think even things like Driller Killer, which when you go into it expecting uh halloween kind of slasher movie it's it's kind of uh you know confusing but it it's a great you know no wave type of thriller uh if you go into it right with the right expectations i thought about you know just that kind of grounding in what ferrara does watching this because i thought 
you know, even 10 minutes into it, like this will appeal to his hardcore fans. I have no idea how it will play to people thinking of the film that they're imagining from the trailer. I feel like a lot of people are going to be very frustrated and the word of mouth could reflect that because, you know, it's it's not the thing that you think it's going to be if you're going in uh, based on the trailer that is out there or even the, the poster it gives a certain kind of impression of something a lot more conventional than it really is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. I saw only today someone going, uh, somebody on Twitter posting the DVD covers of Siberia, 444, and uh, Zeros and Ones. Yeah. And and there was a joke about how they look like very conventional films, but the films themselves are n- not like what the artwork proposes them to be. And, you know, yes, we could laugh at these things, but at the end of the day, if that's what, the people who have decided to release the movies have worked out as the way to sell them, then who cares? <laughs> because otherwise we wouldn't have them necessarily being released. And as we know, both on my side of the world and your side of the world, there was many years where Abel was making movies and they weren't being released, you know? And so what's the problem with if this gets the films out there and justifies their existence in the, you know, to being released in their respective countries. What's the problem, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I saw that, and I saw that tweet as well. That was Will Sloan, actually, from uh, Important mm. Cinema Club podcast. Mm. But yeah, no, um, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's he's making art films that are being sold like commercial genre films. And I think mm. that that's always going to create a number of people that check this out because they have one expectation and that expectation is thwarted. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some people will be happily surprised that it's a lot more ambitious than what's being sold. But I would say like a, an equal number of people are going to be uh, confused and maybe even angry. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what he did from the get-go with, well, his, his second film, The, the Driller Killer. I yeah. mean, in the UK... The film became a video nasty primarily because they took the image, like the one gory sort of money shot moment of the drill going in the guy's head. And they used that as the front cover of the video. And the film got, you know, seized and uh, prosecuted as a video nasty in the UK. Yet when you see the film, you realize that apart from that one scene and that one shot, uh, it's more like a you know, uh, Polanski, new wave kind of influenced, well, new wave film, New York, new wave kind of aesthetic and vibe and budget and creation and everything. But then you got like, you know, the likes of uh, these other filmmakers, you know, loftier, ambitious uh, goals than just like uh, some smaller scale, uh, less ambitious um, horror movie, and, and by the way, that's not to slag uh, not to slag off horror movies of that era and whatever. I don't mean it that way, but I just mean yeah, in yeah. terms of what the film uh, was doing was overtly not like like look the great genre films of the seventies and other eras. They have agendas that are subtext with the the horror scenes as the you know as, as the main thrive of the plot. And the, the subtext is like, oh, well, if you look at this, this could be seen as a comment on the Vietnam War or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But 
the driller killer doesn't do that it is what it is it is this movie about like this artist's descent into madness and when years later after the video nasty uh issues died down in the uk and a lot of the previous video nasties were being reissued they were coming back out again with cuts and with the driller killer they submitted it and the bbfc in the uk were like well yeah we can release it but we'll have to basically cut that whole scene out of it and the distributor lost interest because they were like well if we cut that scene out we don't have a movie that is the driller killer really you know i mean obviously there is drill attacks in the film but if you took if you take that segment out you've got nothing right (laughs) i mean even with you cut all the bits out of like something like zombie flesh eaters you'll still get some zombie action whereas with the driller killer you cut that out you're not left with with very much (laughs) so even from then 1979 he's kind of been doing that and even when you see something like the king of new york if you're expecting new jack city and you get the king of new york it's a very different film i mean it's an amazing film and there are shootouts there's drugs there's girls there's guns there's all kinds of stuff but it's just got this unusual like energy and tone and it's got other things going on that um you know even though that film has moreover elements that make it marketable and sellable and gives the audience what they want it still isn't exactly what they were expecting or what they were uh, probably wanting and that's what he's done out throughout his career and you know um thankfully he's working with people like ethan hawk with willem dafoe all these like names that get movies funded like you know their names are selling the movies uh much like the way nicholas cage movies are but you know abel's movies you know they've just got some great stuff going on in them and yeah and he's always going to be dividing audiences and things and uh you know i hope he keeps making them i mean like i said there was a long period where there was gaps between the films getting made and now he seems to be at the age he is i think he's about he's he's 70 now he's 70 now and he's in the last couple of years he's probably more prolific than he has but you know in terms of the amount of films coming out in a small limited amount of time he's more prolific than he's ever been you know so fair dues you know yeah and and i would say uh, certainly, I would say of Tommaso, like capable of making contenders for his strongest work. Period. I mean, I, I think that that's something that's so surprising because I don't, I don't really run into that a lot. Where uh, filmmakers that have been active for that long seem still capable of of delivering their greatest work. That's usually not how it works with a lot of, certainly with a lot of genre filmmakers. I'm used to them having their 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 hungry and passionate years where they make their name and then and then it's a job maybe and maybe the inspiration fades i feel like that is not the case with him and even during the years where he was really kind of struggling in his personal life i, I don't really feel like that ever harmed the work in a way that uh yeah, I used to. I used to wonder about that. I think I talked about this on the other episode of Directors Club I did about April Ferrara. But just I, I wasn't sure with things like the Blackout and New Rose Hotel, if those uh, more obscure elements were, you know, the drugs taking an impact on his decision making process because they seemed like such confusing decisions. And it was at a time when he was showing up seemingly drunk on Conan O'Brien or recording a very rambling and bizarre <laughs> driller killer audio commentary. It seemed like. He was creating this public perception as somebody that was a little bit, uh, I don't know what word you want to use, but definitely an eccentric character. And it wasn't clear, you know, if, if his creative decisions were being somehow impacted by, you know, hard living off camera. But it, and revisiting the films, you know, all these years later, I don't think that. I thought that when these films were coming out, but now I just see it's, 
it's him kind of breaking the rules in a, in a very creative way uh, to, to find new ways to tell kind of a more contemplative version of the thrillers that you think you're getting. I think at the time, I just thought, uh, maybe he doesn't know that he's retold this, these scenes before in Duro's Hotel. Yeah, well, you know, that's it. I mean, um, I mean, look, I uh, over the years, um, I've heard so many able for our stories because a friend of mine moved to New York in 2003 and for years afterwards he was always ending up working on a film crew with someone who had worked on an able for our shoot and I was hearing for years just some wonderfully crazy stories I think wonderfully like as in they're just great to hear and you know and then you know from a few people he's worked with I've just heard some crazy stuff and you know there is that great you know that that almost like uh, controlled chaos or chaos as usual. I say controlled as in it's almost like a precise thing that someone needs it to thrive to create, I think. Yeah. You know, like Fassbender obviously would be someone who very much, you know, had that going and, you know, Fassbender died at 38, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really happy for, for Abel that he was able to um, go in another direction and yet, the work that's coming out since, you know, since he's moved to, uh, it moved to Italy and, uh, has a family now. And, you know, he's, he's off the drinking drugs or whatever. And yet the work is coming out faster and it's getting in even more interpersonal, more overtly. So, I mean, Tommaso, I mean, the, the scenes in Tommaso when it's Defoe, um, in the Alcoholics Anonymous or, or the Addicts Anonymous, whatever, the meeting, the group meetings, you know. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's one story Defoe's character tells, which sounds very much like something I've heard about what happened on uh, The Blackout, or at least parts of it I could link to what I heard about The Blackout, and this other story came out, and um, I actually found it really heartbreaking. Like, I actually got quite emotional hearing. I mean, you've got Defoe delivering these, you know tales but seeing threads that are relating to an earlier work i mean that it's quite extraordinary and um and uh yeah as you said like at this point in his career doing some of his potentially his best films like and you know siberia absolutely blew my mind when i saw it like last year i thought it was incredible and even like when siberia and it's interesting because abel's done this there may be more times but he's done this twice where he's taken a piece of music that's pre-existed before the movie like a like a like a popular song and he's reused it so in the bad lieutenant you have pledging my love by uh johnny ace who of course uh that song was also in mean streets mm-hmm. but mean streets also has harvey Keitel in it so you think of Harvey Keitel in Mean Streets as being one of Keitel's defining uh, roles. And then Abel has the balls to take that song and put it in another movie with Harvey Keitel. And it's just as, if not more, uh, associated with that actor in another movie, the same song in another movie, if, that, if, that, if you catch my drift. Yeah, that's right. And, and then in Siberia... There's that wonderful scene where Defoe's suddenly dancing with all those uh, all those children to Runaway by Del Shannon, and of course, um, which is amazing. It's one of the great pop songs of all time. Well, of course, Runaway by Del Shannon was the theme tune for Crime Story, 
mm, you know, yeah. which was a different version re-recorded by Del Shannon, if I remember correctly. But, you know, so that that's an interesting uh, kind of loop there of something that's somewhat either self-referential or very specifically referring to something that is involving this person, like in terms of Keitel, uh, a, a, you know, one of his artists um, past, you know, like in that way, you can almost take it that it's like the way Bertolucci used um, Brando in, in like Last Tango in Paris. Like when you're watching Last Tango in Paris, you're not just seeing this guy, Paul, going through this stuff. You're looking at Brando and every single role that Brando's played before him is that guy's history you know yeah yeah this time i thought also just of the um you know you have associations with with a film like bad lieutenant where like a character is uh succumbing to temptations to vice like you know Mm. succumbing to drugs succumbing to casual sex uh and even just um you know those themes of like a, a spiritual questions you know that i thought some of that you know, reoccurring here, but like in a completely different uh, context. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's just like mm. the way that um, these things that you think are indications of the old addictions, it's all it's all transactional. It's all being used for leverage. It's not really mm. about characters that have those problems. I, I, I One of the questions I asked Abel Ferrari, where I did not get an answer that I can include because the audio is just too rough, but he told me that... Um, you know, the, the characters are uh, in almost a Zen state of warfare, um, mm. that they are like ascetics, you know, like they don't have that same kind of uh, compulsion towards the the, uh, the debauchery that you would see in film like The Blackout or film like Welcome to New York or film like Bad Lieutenant. Like it's, it's playing with that imagery. And I just was thinking about like how there's a drug deal scene where you see the sanitizing of all the money um, <laughs> yeah. that yeah. just felt like, like even though... Abel is not part of that world. He still has that fascination with the culture and the ritual of that world and lingers on it in a way. But the only references to addiction in the dialogue are addiction to screens, uh, which I yeah. thought was kind of a funny a funny line. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, sorry, maybe this is coming out of left field or whatever, but one scene that I found really quite like fascinating and quite bizarre and in a wonderful way and i you know it mixed a lot of elements in returns in terms of um you know camera filming people watching people uh, sexuality and just kind of transactions of some kind or another or whatever was the scene when um uh hawk's character is, is expected to have sex with that woman uh on the bed and there's a camera going and then the, that that piece of music um, that was it used in uh, the freaking movie Jade, uh, the Mystic Stream, mm-hmm. starts playing, and that in itself is all kind of an unusual uh, situation. The way it's all unfolding and everything, and then there's that like solarized effect of I think it's a, an image capturing um, behind Hawk. So you've seen Hawk's head uh, from behind his neck, and it's like intense like solarization where it's like yellowy red and it, it, it's like what on earth in a, in a wonderful way i don't mean like what is this craziness i just mean like what's this about it's really i don't know it was suddenly adding like another layer and making this this situation kind of abstract and peculiar and it was just yeah it just came out of nowhere and for a film as well because it's quite a nocturnal film 
a lot of scenes shot with natural light and doesn't suddenly have this very gaudy um, processed excessively processed image Uh, most of the time in the film you only see those images like that when it is somebody watching something off a screen and then you're looking at this action in the narrative and then suddenly it, it it's it's looking like it's something off a screen and um yeah i mean even something as simple as that just the way it can kind of uh pull you out because again it's a scope movie as i was saying and i'd love to have seen it on a big screen because uh you know even when i was watching it it's a film you really have to watch with your surroundings in darkness to just like to tune into the the kind of after hours vibe of the of the imagery this very nocturnal imagery and and what i love as well is when you watch classic movies of like you know nighttime shoots like say something like uh, you know the warriors for example mm. it, it's that beautiful fluorescent blues and greens and whatever and it just looks so crisp and things but you know in reality a lot of street lights um are yellow <laughs> you know and uh you know we we don't have that kind of neon look anymore unless you're somewhere like maybe las vegas or something but you know that, that those kind of that kind of brightly lit thing you don't really see at night anymore and a lot of like real lighting is kind of this quite ugly yellowy look to it and things you know and the film nicely captured that because on one hand you're sort of seeing this um almost dystopian espionage you know plot going on and it's slightly surreal and slightly removed and yet when you think of nighttime lighting in movies it tends to be quite uh you know that kind of beautiful crisp look to it whereas it has that kind of real life yellowy you know low lit look to it and even some of the scenes in the apartments and the in, in the indoor interiors are really kind of like low low lighting and things which are Again, uncomfortably naturalistic looking. I thought about that too, because even though, you know, it, it's it's taking place all at night, uh, even the interior scenes are, are, are pretty dark. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't like the, the, the scenes in apartments don't like necessarily change the vibe of, of nighttime murkiness that you have in the exterior scenes. Like it's still, it's mm. all of a piece that way. It, it gives it like a feeling of all being stolen in one night in a city under lockdown, which, I mean, we know, you know, films are not made that way. It's, you know, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. professional production, but it feels like um, a lot more of a stolen shot type of film than maybe it even is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also I love those kind of from dust to dawn movies where it's like one night or whatever. I mentioned the Warriors there because that's one of those great movies that begins at night and it's only at the very end it becomes daylight, at, much like this. And um, when you tune into that nighttime vibe, like anyone who's had to, you know, drive at night, work at night, you know, um, shoot a movie at night, whatever it is, it's something that, you know, it's, it's at night and you're sleeping in the day or whatever it, even though the actions you are doing might be the same actions as daylight, there is a different vibe when it's at nighttime even if you're indoors even if all the lights are on it's just a different vibe and that movie captures that vibe i think which um it, it just feels like 90 percent of the country or 95 percent of the country or whatever is asleep but five percent aren't and you're one of them and that movie especially with those like empty streets and things like some of those moments at very early on when it's hawk just marching down the street at night i don't know i just felt quite um 
anxious watching them. Not not that like anything was going to happen, but it just felt uncomfortably close, too close to home, if that makes any sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me um, play a, uh, a brief interview I conducted with, with uh, the writer-director Abel Ferrara. Um, th- and uh, this was recorded over Zoom, and uh, we only had 10 minutes with Abel, and even within those 10 minutes, we had multiple technical issues. Um, Abel's uh, earbuds stopped working at one point, and the uh, connection became so rough that really the last few minutes of the uh, of his audio uh pretty much unusable and I, I did include one question where you can make out most of what he's saying but it's I'm going to tell you uh, right now listeners that it's very rough and after uh, after the interview clip plays I'll reiterate what he said so you can uh, you can make out what his answer was because I thought it was uh, you know compelling enough to uh, to, to keep it in the in the show so here's uh, here's my uh, brief interview with Abel Ferrara How you doing, Abel? Yeah, good, man. How you doing? Good, good. Uh, let's just jump right into it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the origins of Zeros and Ones? Uh, you know, the fact that it's so much of it is filmed entirely at night and dawn um, yeah. because of the curfew in Rome, uh, it gives it like a very specific kind of feeling. I was just curious, did you know those restrictions going in when you were writing it? Well, we were in the middle of the pandemic, you know, so, you know, uh, you know, the idea of an empty city I was living in. I was there for it. You know, I, I mean, I was in the middle of it that the uh, project came together. Some of these ideas I've been thinking about, news, fake news, you know, Vatican, whether it's blown up, whether it's, you know, it's, that's not, it's a photo, you know, what, what's real, what's not real, espionage, counter-espionage, that kind of thing. But then the vision of the, of, of that world, was right in front of me, you know, and, uh, you know, sometimes like the most horrible thing, the pandemic case in point, you know, there's a silver lining to it. The silver lining is that nine o'clock, there was a nine o'clock curfew and you can, um, you know, you had the city to yourself. You could do all those shots, you know, which you're like, when could you ever do that? Never. How often do you write with films? How, how often do you write films with a specific location in mind? Like, do you see dramatic possibilities wherever you go? I mean, as far as, uh, you know, ideas for stories, or do you always build from character or theme? Uh, the reason I ask is because I know that you were shooting in Piazza Vittorio, uh, where you live, and I, I, I love the documentary you made on that neighborhood. Uh, were you thinking about this story? Uh, like, was it was it influenced by... Your surroundings, and is that something that, as a writer, happens to you often? Well, you know, this is like you know, usually, you know, we stay close to home just for, I guess, because I know it and I'm comfortable 
and 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 uh, you know I get a feel for the locations by living there. Yeah, you know, I mean, we don't travel well, you know. I mean, though we do it, so just kind of like a Piazza Vittorio. I don't know if it's a tree. It might be a trilogy, right? We did the documentary. I did Tommaso here. You know, but then the elements, the elements of the Vatican, using the Vatican, I knew that was in there. I I, I, I like the idea of the, you know, the American soldiers there, you know, it was kind of a homage to like, you know, kind of those war movies I grew up with. Mm. American GIs, you know, yeah. quiet, tough dude, you know, you, you know, yeah, yeah. these are kind of very iconic and very young. You know, like a kind of a genre film for us, you know, for me, you know, in, in terms of inspiration, I don't know, in terms of execution. Well, I know that you've introduced like a nonfiction or documentary element to, into a lot of your quote unquote fiction feature films. I mean, not even counting the, the straight up documentaries. I'm thinking of things like Bad Lieutenant or Dangerous Game, Gerard Depardieu uh, talking out of character about Welcome to New York. And I, I thought of that when, when Ethan Hawke is being used out of character to bookend the story. Can you talk to me about yeah. that idea? Was that something that you always had in mind or was that something that you had the footage and thought this was a great way yeah, to... Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like that. You know, we kind of used it like that and... Like you say, welcome to New York. Now, yeah, welcome to New York. We used Gerard just talking about the movie, you know. I don't know why we used it, because we actually were going to do that for Cannes. And then I'm thinking, well, this is a good way just to get it, set everybody straight on what's going on here. You know, kind of quote unquote, you know what I mean? Yeah. I like introduced the movie, you know, it's like a Rod Twilight, you know, like Rod Serling. Okay, this is what's up, bro. You know, and then we did it Siberia a little bit. Willem's uh, voiceover in the beginning of that was, it was in character, but it was also taken from his ideas on on the movie itself, you know? Yeah. So then in this pandemic, you know, because we go, all the, all the festivals and all the places we usually go are all online. We're constantly doing these Vimeos. So it's almost like pandemic filmmaking. You know, it's like part of a pandemic film. There's like a, you know, a um, remote introduction. So maybe we just put it in and then we put it in the beginning. I'm thinking maybe you work at the end, you know? Yeah. Well, that actually brings up another question I had was because the way most people are going to see your movies has changed so much over the years that you've been making films from theater, video, cable, I got to think that most people that saw Tommaso or Siberia seeing this one are probably going to be seeing it at home, you know, maybe on a laptop, maybe, maybe streaming as, as, as a visual storyteller, do you think about that side of it when you're creating or do you you still think in terms of a big screen, in terms of how you think of the images? I mean, is, is the way technology is changing? You know, people watch things at home. Most of them have better setups than they have in a movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. Most of these people have, have, you know, cool TVs and and, and surround, you know. You watch something on a high-end Mac, you're watching it high-end, you know. Yeah. So, you know, you sit close to your fucking laptop, you're seeing it on a big screen, believe me. You know what I mean? So how people want to watch a film is, is out of my control, you know, but it doesn't... I'm not... I realize it's a big difference, the look of it, the sound of it, the, you know, not seeing it next to each other, but you you can still get a digital image in, in a movie theater. You know, it's not like you're going to the movies and now you're going to see it 
you know, projected like old school style where, you know, it's, you know, you remember in the old days when you're watching a regular movie, there's black between those frames. You think by the end of the movie, by the end of any movie, a non-digital old school movie, the audience is sitting in the dark for 10 minutes. Right. Okay. Really. If you put all those little moments that the chick is going through that, that, um, you know, the projectors. So maybe those are the 10 minutes that, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like a different, a totally different way of um, accepting the information as opposed to zeros and ones, digital mathematical as a constant assault on your, uh, you know, on your senses. One thing I noticed you were doing with the camera in zeros and ones that uh, I wanted to ask you about was the way the camera will push in and, and and rather than make things more clear, it makes it more uh, abstract. Like I'm thinking about when when JJ is looking at the video, looking for his brother, and rather than clarifying, pushing in only makes it more unclear, more abstract. Or when we're looking at the water torture, and you push in so far that it becomes less disturbing, more and more like a like abstract, almost like nature. Is this something that you think about? As a, as a conscious strategy when you're making the film, or is this something that just feels right in the moment? Well, you know, I mean, it's part of the title of the film. I mean, what are you really seeing? Yeah. You know, what is it? In the, you know, blowing up the bed, you really blowing it up like when the, the character says the other character, shoot it like they, so they believe it. Yeah. And, you know, what does that even mean? How do you, you know, he's being assaulted by images. Are they real? Are they not real? They handed him a photograph of him with, you know, him and his brother with two Russian agents. You know, he's a pro. He's, you know, he's a trained espionage agent. He knows it's Photoshop. This is Photoshop. That also would get even twice with two girls that they, you know, he never would. You know, so what are you really looking at? You know, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at a mathematical computation. You know, you look at a series of zeros and ones. And the closer you get to it, what are you really getting to? You know, and the closer you get to something, you know, the less aware of it you are. You know, it's like Einstein. The more you observe something, all you're learning is about is the tool you're observing it with. Yeah. You know, so at the end of the day, what you're looking at is is what that camera can record. But you know, actually, you know, you learn more about the camera than you do about the people in front of it. Okay, and uh, that was Abel Ferrara and myself in conversation, and his um, his answer to the question I had presented to him about uh, how the camera moves in, pushing in, uh, making things more obscure, more abstract, uh, what his answer was, uh, was that, you know, it's part of the title of the film. What are you really seeing? He's being assaulted by images. Are they real? Are they not real? They hand him a photograph of him and his brother with two Russian agents. And, you know, he's a pro. He's trained in espionage. He knows it's photoshopped because it is photoshopped. So what are you really looking at? That's what you're looking at. You're looking at a mathematical computation, an algorithm. You're looking at a series of zeros and ones. 
And of course, you get to it, what are you really getting to? The closer you get to something, the less aware of it you are. It's like Einstein. The more you observe something, all you're learning about is the tool you're observing it with. So at the end of the day, what you're looking at is what that camera can record. You learn more about that camera than the people in front of you. So I thought that was, I thought that was worth preserving because I think that's, that's what the film is really about. And um, I, I thought that was a great answer and I wanted to keep it in. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, um, you know, Abel Ferrara, one of the great things about him in, in regards to his work, and this is becoming more and more overt, I think, as the more recent films come, is fact and fiction. Hmm. And sometimes there's moments where, like, um, you know, obviously in this movie, it begins with Ethan Hawke as Ethan Hawke talking to the audience. Um, obviously in uh, Welcome to New York, it begins with Depardieu commenting. And, you know, he's, he makes documentaries as well as features. And as I was saying earlier, when you go back to, say, Dangerous Game, there's the, the scene with Madonna's uh, character and uh, James Russo's character. And it, it, from what it from what you can gather, what's happened is they're, they're you know, they're actors on screen making a film and there's supposed to be like a, a, a sexual assault. And it appears after the scene from her reaction that that assault was real on camera and you know there's there's a lot playing with you know what's real and what's what's not real what's being uh, performed and what what isn't and that it that in itself isn't is ambiguity and for filmmakers to push ambiguity especially in in uh 2021 that's something that i think's uh unique not maybe not unique it's rare because um, it, it tends to be now that for filmmakers to have a message, they tend to be a bit more blunt in making sure if they have a, a message that the subtext isn't subtext. It's it's more like on par with the plot, you know. Mm, yeah. And like take his previous films, Siberia. What I love is the fact is when I saw Siberia, I saw it in Berlin, and every uh, scene in the film is subtitled with English subtitles. Uh, or is it Ger- German and English? It, it, it's subtitled so the audience, the local audience, as well as the you know the international audience, will, will be able to understand it. And when it, well, I won't give away the ending, but there's this very key moment towards the end where there's a sentence spoken in a foreign language with no subtitle on the screen. At the time, I kind of assumed maybe that was a real language. It's just that they chose not to have a subtitle for it. But when I spoke to the scriptwriter, uh, Chris Zoss, uh, it's a made-up language. (laughs) So (laughs) the moment in the film that seems to be, you know, like a philosophical phrase that is, you know, uh, explaining or summarizing everything that's gone on, it's it's literally gibberish. (laughs) You know? So, So, like... You know, to do something like that, it's just like, what the hell? You know, I mean, that 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 takes balls. You know, that that's really pushing something. I think. Yeah. Well, you know, you you talk about the 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 blending of documentary element within narrative uh, fiction features. I mean, I think that there's there's footage in uh, uh, 
driller killer of, of, of homeless people that is documentary footage that is not uh, actors. I mean, there's mm. the ending of Bad Lieutenant where you have real New Yorkers who think they're looking at a dead body in a car and how they react to it says a lot about that environment. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you have you have lots of, of, of blurring the line. And I think that that gives the, um, you know, the fiction films that an immediacy and a visceral quality that, you know, I think the aim is always to feel naturalistic. I think of, you know, a director like, um, like Robert Altman that felt like he was capturing things that, uh, you know, were unscripted and, and, and part of real life that just were incorporated into this, you know, uh, fiction plot. Uh, Ferrara, I think, certainly from like Bad Lieutenant on where they don't even have the, the glossiness of the China Girl, King of New York kind of uh, slickness. They, I mean, they, they really do feel like captured moments in the street, even though you know that there's a screenplay, you know that there's uh, a filmmaker's guiding hand, but... Um, I think that rough around the edges feeling, I mean, obviously you look to people like Cassavetes for that kind of quality or even Mike Mm -hmm. Lee. I think that's why Ferrara kind of captured the imagination of uh, certainly like a a strain of film writers like Brad Stevens, you know, that um, could see that there was something more than just um, reiterating the crime genre tropes i mean in a in a uh, in a new way it was the way it was being the way those stories were being told was new yeah oh absolutely i mean um i get the impression that with his uh, cinematographer uh what's his name bojan bojan bazelli um who shot king of new york and uh, body snatchers i think um with King of New York and, and, and Body Snatchers, uh, which being uh, Ferrara's only kind of gun-for-hire studio picture, like, visually, they're so precise and really beautifully aesthetic uh, qualities that are m- moving along the story. I mean, what I love about, say, King of New York in particular is the film has this grittiness yet dreamy, surreal quality. You know, yeah. like the film, when, when it begins, you have those wonderful shots of walking, looking out the window of his of his limousine after he's picked up from prison. And the the light hitting off his face, the the blue and the white is, is supposedly like the lights passing from coming from the, you know, the passenger side of the window of the car he's in, of the exteriors. Yet they just seem so unnaturally sort of slow and it's quite poetic or something. And there's just some sort of like almost... Heroin-esque sort of slowness to the movements or something. I don't know if that's quite what I'm summarizing here, but but that movie uses like you know a plot that's as old as the hills. You know the rise and fall of the criminal, the little Caesar, the you know white heat, whatever. Mm-hmm. And yet there's just so many levels in it, you know. And um, yeah, it, it's it's quite an incredible movie. And also. Uh, I almost got the impression that he got so because he perfected it maybe with like the visual look he was going for with King of New York he got restless and then from Bad Lieutenant onwards he wanted it to be a bit loose and sloppy you know yeah and because uh, sometimes it is improvised I think and sometimes it's just the camera is almost searching for the action as well rather than the camera being so stationed and the actors being so stationary you know yeah i think I, I i always think of someone like jess franco who had like a very slick style at one point and just jettisoned it for the raw immediacy of something that feels completely off the cuff almost to the point where it, it might even feel unprofessional in places <laughs> because mm. it's just that much more concerned with feeling real than feeling beautiful yeah 
the speed and the energy rather than the preciseness or yeah 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 was there anything else that we want to say about this film i know that we're trying our best to preserve any plot surprises but still give people a sense of what it is i mean is there anything else you want to say about about uh, zeros and ones um well i i suppose i kind of want to highlight because it's such a, a strong film about mood and themes and media and fake news and yeah, all these different elements. I suppose just one thing I just wanted to point out is is I'm I'm actually a huge fan of Ethan Hawke. I uh, like when I was when he was younger, I always thought he 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 looked like a typically kind of handsome guy, and um, a lot of the movie roles when I was growing up, when I was you know um, you know in the nineties or whatever, I I didn't find a lot of the movies he was appearing in to be as interesting, or uh, to me for me at the time and I didn't think they seemed as interesting of course some of them looking back now I think maybe they are but around a certain point when he started aging and his face just he has a great face I, I think he has such a great he's still a handsome guy but he has a certain lived lived in quality as well and like I remember around 2009 2010 there seemed to be like a, a string of movies where he was appearing in roles that would have been perfect for Warren Oates <laughs> in terms of like he was playing these like losers like when you think of his introduction in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead the, the final Sidley Lumet film his intro the character's introduction is literally you have Philip Seymour Hoffman at the table of a restaurant or a bar and it's Hawk appearing on a mobile phone or cell phone saying yes I'll have the alimony next week I told you to have the alimony and then as he's trying to hang up the phone he accidentally breaks the phone and he's just like right. effing and blinding. And that's his introduction. <laughs> you know, he's just like, and then, you, you know, you think of uh, Brooklyn's Finest, which I I wasn't too keen on the film as, an, as a whole. I didn't think it was great. But his story I really liked. Or there was another film, uh, Staten Island. It was also made around that time. And uh, though I just really found it fascinating how he was playing all these kind of roles. And really... Uh, maturing immensely as, a, as, a, as an actor with great range and presence and uh, uh, boyhood um, oh, yeah. I thought he was very good in that as well and I think he's really good in this and of course you've got the the sort of somewhat sort of stoic uh, you know guy on a mission uh, character the main the main character but then the the brief moments where you have him playing his twin like the the different qualities of the two characters and how he plays them i think are quite extraordinary like that whole monologue and i'm saying this bit because it's quoted somewhat in the tra i think it's quoted a little bit in the trailer i saw anyway of the mm -hmm. why aren't people why is it why isn't anyone setting themselves on fire anymore or whatever it is he's saying or why <laughs> i want to set myself on fire why aren't people setting themselves on fire anymore and um i don't know it's like even though you're looking at the same face um the two energies coming from the the actor playing those two roles in the same movie. I don't know. It's just really, really fascinating. And um, I think with all the other stuff we've been talking about, and it's maybe his the qualities of his performance can maybe be kind of almost uh, forgotten, not dismissed or anything, or not acknowledged, but just maybe kind of forgotten about. But I, I thought he did a really good job. And um, yeah, I just wanted to highlight that because he's become one of my favorite uh, mainstream actors. Um, and it's no surprise to me that like, you know, two of the the most 
prolific and exciting actors in like mainstream and independent American cinema are Willem Dafoe and Ethan Hawke at the moment. And it's great that they're doing films with Abel uh, yeah. Ferrara. And I just wanted to acknowledge that performance because I just thought he was really good in it. Oh, he's amazing in it, yeah. Mm. And I thought, it's funny, I, I don't know why I was thinking of it because both Willem Dafoe and Ethan Hawke, I also associate with Paul Schrader. I mean, Ethan Hawke mm. did such a great uh, performance in First Reformed. And this year, both Ferrara and Paul Schrader have new films that evoke Abu Ghraib in different ways, that, that yeah. water torture element. And I thought that was an interesting coincidence that, that you know these these two East Coast mavericks that are both in the you know, uh, quasi post Scorsese kind of landscape of, you know, East Coast auteurs of that generation, you know, uh, they're both making films that are still asking political questions and still being, you know, confrontational in a way that is uh, refreshing. I mean, because it's, you know, they, they, they haven't uh, mellowed with age at all. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, like, I mean, both Schrader and uh, Ferrara are probably, you know, like, I can't keep up with either of them. They've got they've got something coming out every every. Well, I was gonna say every year, but it feels like every six months or something. It's it's great, and like I said, each of the films that are coming out, they all have qualities that are similar but different. I mean, you know, and the fact that these guys are like really taking the bull by the horns and you know making small scale movies. I say small scale in the realm of what's big scale these days. You know. Mm. Um, and having these interesting actors, like the only actor that I can think of right now, I'd love to see do a film with Ferrara is uh, Matt Dillon. And the reason I'm thinking of him is because is in that documentary um, about his neighborhood, uh, uh, Piazza Vittorio. Piazza, yeah. If you look like split second, there's a moment where the camera swooshes that around and you see kind of Matt Dillon in the background hanging out with like Defoe or something, you know, and it's like, yeah, I want to I see Matt Dillon in a, in a, in a Ferrara film. You know? I would love that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was interesting how it was the neighborhood from Piazza Vittorio where they shot this. I mean, I think Tommaso was also shot there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And again, it automatically almost felt kind of familiar because <laughs> it's like, ah, he shot it where he lives you know and it's like that's the thing about the, uh, the new movie uh if you know the films of abel ferrara and uh you've followed the work and you followed the recent stuff all the as well as the older ones there are a lot of different moments that you can link to other movies or different you know whatever's uh real life and otherwise but um i'm hoping even without that context that there will be people who um just take it as this rather peculiar film they've stumbled upon and uh and they unexpectedly get something out of it that they weren't expecting to see it's my hope as well mm. and uh you know this this film is uh, as we're recording this um it, it's going to be available digitally uh and on demand and in select theaters on friday november 19th and available on blu-ray and dvd on january 4th um thank you so much for for doing this conversation with me i i, I had a lot of fun and i wanted to ask where can listeners check out your work i know that you are um trying to wrap up yeah, I, I don't know, like your 60th video essay or something like this year. I don't know what your schedule is like. What, uh, where, where can listeners learn more about you other than my uh, episode of uh, supporting characters with you? Right. And you know, what's so weird is that that episode was a couple of years ago and it just seems like so much has changed since. So it's like <laughs> in the last 19, 20 months, I've done 21 video essays. Yeah. And I think I have another four coming up in the next few months 
and then probably some more next year. So in regards to where they can find out more about my work, well, I do post about my work on social media. Usually it's Chris O'Neill 99 or a variation of that on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. And I also have a Vimeo account um, where I post uh, some the short films I've done, trailers, little bits and pieces, music videos. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's how I try to keep ahead of myself or try to keep <laughs> figure out what I do. Sometimes I have to go through my, my social media feed to go, oh, yeah, <laughs> just have I announced that yet? Oh, yeah, I have. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, no, thanks for asking me to come on this. Um, as we've discussed before, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Abel Ferrara. I think his current work output is uh, some of the best stuff he's done. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing more. And uh, yeah, and, and also it's just great to see zeros and ones uh, getting a release like uh, because it is a it is a strange film in some regards but uh, you know that's what Abel's always done he's always done films that conventionally look like they're going to do one thing but they go another way and that's how people have discovered the classics like Bad Lieutenant and King of New York and um, even to some extent the, the addiction because the addictions, you know, is a vampire film, but it's got something else going on. And the funeral is like a period gangster drama, but it's got something else going on. And, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, the, this film will find an audience and no doubt, you know, by this time next year, uh, there'll be probably another one, if not two more Abel Ferrara films coming out. And uh, that's great. And, you know, keep them coming. Yeah, I completely agree. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for, for listening. And, uh, you know, I guess Jim will bring the, uh, the proper Directors Club uh, back with the next episode. So uh, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>